times have you found yourself sitting where you're sitting, doing what you're doing, running where you're running, walking where you're walking, thinking, if only I could hear a really fantastic story about either someone I know or someone I've never heard of, but I want to be inspired and I want to hear great conversation and questions and I want to laugh and I want to cry and I want to feel something, but more than anything, I want to connect and I want to believe in the human spirit again because out there, not in my ears or face to face, I'm not feeling connected to humanity. Well, then you've come to the right place. This is Talk To Me and I am Liv Harrison and I cannot wait to introduce you to my friends, to my family, to people I love, to people I barely know. Here's the deal. I love people. And all I want is for you to love them back. Before I start telling my story about my weight loss, which is very dramatic for anyone who has been following me on my social media you know that I shared about a year and a half or so ago that I used to weigh 458 pounds and I had never shared that publicly before. I decided, you know, the best time to share that is on Sirius XM radio, you know, internationally, why not? And that kind of sums up my life, right? All or nothing, bigger than life, go big, go home, Uh, insert any dumb like cliche and it will work. So before I go into this um, huge weight loss story and journey, um, I need to share that I am not a medical professional. I am a, a woman who lives in Houston, Texas, who talks about living in Louisiana probably too much. And I share my life and I share my stories and I'm vulnerable and I'm real. But today is going to be a little close to home for some people. It might trigger something. It might, um, I'm going to talk about addiction, food addiction, eating disorders. If any of those things are something that you are not okay with, you need to not listen to this broadcast. Or if you are coming here to get medical advice, that's not okay either. Everything that I do for my personal journey has been approved by my medical team. So I'm not advocating what I do for other people. I tell people that all the time. My story is different. (laughs) So my recovery is different and my choices now are different. That is something that needs to be heard before I get going on this. So thank you if you're leaving and thank you if you're staying. As a little girl in Louisiana, which I know (laughs) at this point, if you've been listening to my podcast, you're thinking to yourself, dear heavenly angels. How is there like any (laughs) stories left? How old is she? Like, I mean, how many stories about Louisiana? Do I work for the tourism bureau? Anyway, sorry, but I'm, you know, it is what it is. My life was in Louisiana when I was a little kid. And when I was a little kid is when my weight journey started. 
I wanted to come on and talk about my weight story, and I really wanted to talk and address about how I've been losing the weight. But listen, you can't get to that space without talking about how you got there in the first place, okay? My story is this. I wound up being 458 pounds. I do not know if that is the highest I ever weighed because we got to a point where I was no longer weighable. <laughs> I don't know if that's a word. I was I was no longer able to be weighed on a scale in normal doctor's offices. I've now been, you know, to places where you can get on like these major scales, like <laughs> where they have like a Costco and stuff where they're weighing like airplanes. I don't know. But At the time, that's the highest that we are aware that was recorded, 458 pounds. I am now currently in the 170s. That story from going from 458 to the 170s has taken me 15 years, 15 years. So let's start at the beginning, shall we? And not crazy at the beginning, but how did I get there? How did I get to 458 before we figure out how I got out of it? It started when I was a kid. I grew up on three and a half acres of land and my parents called one half, is that how you say that? One half of an acre (laughs) was a garden, quote unquote, which, listen, come on, that can't be a garden, half an acre, half an acre is a garden. I mean, we need to look up what a garden is, but there's no way that counts as a garden. My father got a John Deere green tractor, like the kind that they sing about in country songs, the kind that, I mean, like the legit huge John Deere mass, like the tire was taller than I was tractor. That is not a garden. If you have to ride on this thing to put plants in the ground, that that is now a farm, okay? I basically was Dorothy at this point. So my father had this huge tractor. We loved the tractor because, okay, you remember in school when you would like ride the bus, right? The the normal yellow big bus. And there was always those couple of seats that had the hump on the ground because of where the big tire was. So you would get stuck on the hump seat and you could put your feet up on it. I loved the hump seat, of course. I mean, of course I did. When everybody else was like, we hate it. I was like, it's my favorite. So imagine that on the huge John Deere green tractor that my father was driving, I would sit on the piece that went over the big, huge tire. Okay. So my dad's driving and I'm sitting on the hump piece. (laughs) I shouldn't talk to people. I listen, that's what I sat on. I don't know what to call it. I'm sure it has a name. I tire cover. I don't know. I would sit on top of that and my dad would till the earth. I mean, this sounds so like, I don't, I mean, like this is like great Gatsby kind of stuff. So yeah, he would till the earth. One year I remember for Christmas, my mother bought him some like, I don't know what to call them. Like additions. I'm trying to think of like what I call my, my extra pieces for my KitchenAid. (laughs) She bought him these extra tools, right. That you could like hook up to the back of the tractor I mean, they're massive, right? They like dig in the earth and they like actually till the soil and they, 
I mean, they didn't make hay, but like basically there was like these three huge pieces that my mom bought my dad. It was a big deal. And I remember that was the first time I had ever seen someone wrap up a piece of paper as a gift because obviously she couldn't wrap up these massive pieces of farm equipment for a quote unquote, quote, garden. But she wrapped up the piece of paper you know, I guess from, I have no idea where she bought that from. Where do you buy farm equipment? Wherever. And gave it to my dad. I remember him being really excited. So the tractor was a huge part of my life. This garden was a huge part of my life. We had rows of corn, like actual corn, like rows, people. Like, hello, watermelon, tomatoes, strawberries. Why can I not think of any other vegetable on the planet right now? <laughs> Okay, listen, there was a lot of vegetables, okay? Lots of fruit. On top of that, on this three and a half acres, one acre was covered in pecan trees. I mean, if you haven't had fresh pecans from Louisiana, look, I don't know what you're doing because, man, that stuff is so good. And then all along the fence lines, there were just these natural wild blackberry bushes. Like, this was my life, right? picking and harvesting this garden with my family in the end of the summer, the beginning of fall. My, my mother is the oldest of 10 and she always had a younger sibling at the university where we lived. So in Natchitoches, this town in North Louisiana, there's a university there, which is where my parents met Northwestern state university. And so she always had a sibling there. And so they would come in and they would all come and shuck the corn. I mean, Y'all, how Southern summer is this? You know, we're just drinking ass tea, just, just you know, taking a rag to our throats, just saying, I declare it is so hot outside. Basically, that's basically what we did is we're snapping green beans and shucking corn and peeling all those little corn silks. This was my introduction to food. It was natural. It was beautiful. Came from the ground. Like, it's not like I just grew up with like processed Walmart food. Listen, we all love Walmart, but I'm just saying, like, I grew up with fresh food that we grew and made ourselves and wild blackberries that I would just run in my yard, you know, and eat and pecans that I'd find on the ground that I would crack open with my teeth, which is probably a huge mistake. I began with a really healthy experience with food. And I talked about this before. My my father owned a truck stop. He owned the only truck stop in Natchitoches. And I've talked about there is a lot of amazing, beautiful characters that I met in that space. I started working there when I was seven. I opened my first bank account when I was seven because I was the water menu girl. So I was I was the first face that these truckers would see when they, you know, they're doing these long hauls and they would stop because we had this great truck stop, great food, showers, we had a Wurlitzer. Listen, I would play Kenny Rogers and I would play Willie Nelson. You know, I would play on the road again and I would play the gambler <laughs> all the time, all the time. And I, and I became a master at Miss Pac-Man because we had a Miss Pac-Man big, you know, whatever video game thing. I mean, this was, this was the eighties, everybody. It was so fantastic. So I would be the water menu girl. These truckers would come in. I would sit them down in a booth. I would give them their menu. And I had, you know, those frosted glasses that I've talked about, filled them with water. And I had a little tip jar. In the back was our cook. Her name was Big Mama. 
beautiful, amazing, fantastic, big black woman that taught me about food that had a stool next to the stove. And we would sit and talk about my day at school and she would make me grilled cheese and she would recreate things I loved in the cafeteria. I thought she was a genius. She is. She was. It was such a great childhood. So my introduction to food was interesting because I had this fresh food that I I grew and then I had this, I mean, come on, in the Northeast, you've got diners and down South, you've got truck stops. And it was just good, greasy, all American, put on the butter, fry it up food. Well, on top of that, my mother is Cajun. She's from South Louisiana. So that's a lot of rice. That's a lot of fried food. That's a lot of seafood. That's a lot of cream. That's a lot of butter, right? You got a New Orleans and man, you are eating fine. And when you go to the Northeast, you go where my father's from. He's from New Jersey, 100% Italian, lots of pasta, lots of cheese. So I came from these backgrounds that know how to eat, okay? There was no confusion as to how to make food taste delicious. That was not the problem. One of the big things was in Natchitoches, the only thing to do, my mother said, was to entertain. It was the quintessential small town where the entertaining was how you socialized. There was nothing else to do. My mother, Vicky, is holy smokes. When I say this woman can entertain, I promise you, even no, even though no one is coming over for Thanksgiving this year, and I'm I am taping and recording right now the week of Thanksgiving. <laughs> She has all the dishes laid out on the dining room table. I promise, I promise you. And they're cleaned and they're all set out and they all have cards because Vicky sometimes um, prints them off, but normally she, you know, does like calligraphy for what each dish is going to be. And it's set out a week in advance. I mean, she can entertain. I learned how to entertain from my mother. It's wow. It's an art. Well, the problem is, is that we did a lot of that entertaining and most people can handle it. But if you heard what I'm saying, food was in every part of my life, growing in the land, either from Jesus or my father, right? (laughs) God put the pecan trees and the blackberry bushes. My dad put all the other stuff. The truck stop, which was just, I mean, I grew up there. It was fantastic. Then I have this Cajun mother, this Italian father who both cook and it's ridiculous. And then this entertaining that happened, oh, not just on holidays, but all the time. Food was part of every part of my life. It was all the time. Now, I think a lot of people can handle that, right? But we didn't know because you don't know till you know. I formed an unhealthy bond with food. Now, when did that form? I would argue it started when I was small. I learned very quickly that my parents are very generous in everything that they do, including in their cooking of food, okay? (laughs) Like you would, you'd be like, oh, are 78 people coming over? And the answer could be yes, or the answer could be no, just our family. You know, like they made a tremendous amount of food. They still do. So that means leftovers. That means Tupperware. That means you put things in these boxes, seal them up, put them in the fridge, call it a day. And that was exciting to me because I knew if I woke up at two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, I could sneak into the refrigerator. We had more than one. Uh, We had a leftover refrigerator and then a current refrigerator, like what was holding all the, you know, the good stuff, like, right? Like eggs, milk, cheese, you know, what you use every day. And I would go to that back refrigerator and I would 
open the refrigerator door. This is how, this is how brilliant I got about it. I would sit on the ground. I would open it up and I would look at my favorite dishes in there. There was two that I'm going to be making this week for Thanksgiving that I have a lot of feelings wrapped around with. The first one is broccoli rice casserole. I think that's a Southern dish. Man, I tell you what, geez, are you kidding me right now? It is so flipping good. And when I eat it cold, because I like formed an attachment to this cold version of it, because think about it, I couldn't eat it up at three in the morning. Someone would have heard me. So I learned how to love cold food. Like when, when college kids talk about cold pizza or cold, uh, what else do people love? They love cold fried chicken, right? That's what this is for me. Oh, already getting emotional. Um, my parents were not aware that I was sneaking at eight years old, as young as eight. God, I might've been seven. Going to the refrigerator opening the door, keeping it open, sitting on the floor. Like think of the humiliation of this. I'm sitting on the kitchen floor and I have as many of those Tupperware containers as my little lap can hold. And I just start opening and just start scooping. I would make my, my, my pointer finger and my middle finger into like a human spoon. And I would scoop in and I would eat it and then scoop back in. We came and talk about the double dip situation. Obviously this wasn't during COVID. And, uh, I would do that until I got so full, my stomach would hurt. Oh, wow. Mm. That's what I would do. And I loved it. I also learned a couple of things during that time. I learned to survey the food I was eating and choose what I was going to eat because I knew at some point I would get sick. So I always wanted to make sure I was eating the best parts. You know what I mean? I would definitely look and see which part had like the most, if I was really wanting broccoli right then in that rice broccoli casserole, which one had like the best, like it looked like the best part of the broccoli, like a lot of broccoli or, you know, where was the most like, oh, you know how cheese when you like cook it and it gets all crispy and crunchy and brown. Oh, that's the good stuff. The edge part. That's where I would go. Now, the other dish that I'm going to be making at the end of the week for this week is homemade potato salad. A tradition in our family is we have a huge Thanksgiving meal. It is not uncommon, not this year, but every other year we have 50 to about 85 people for Thanksgiving. That is our norm. Okay. A low year is 50 people. Okay. That's crazy. A high year is 85. What? That's insane. I'm not exaggerating. That day, Thanksgiving day, my mother takes, and we have multiple turkeys, my mother takes the big, huge turkey carcass, and she has a ginormous gumbo pot, and she starts boiling down that carcass as we are eating Thanksgiving dinner, because the next day, she makes a turkey sausage gumbo, okay? And in South Louisiana, where she's from, you eat that gumbo with white rice, you get a bowl, you have white rice. And then you pour your turkey sausage gumbo. My mom strains it for me because I am a non-meat eater naturally. I just do not like meat. I stopped eating it at three years old. So she strains it for me and she makes the best homemade potato salad you will ever put in your mouth. And I do not say that lightly. And you put a scoop of her homemade potato salad on top. So rice, gumbo, 
potato salad. Yes, on top of it. And when I tell you it is a game changer, I am not kidding. But let me tell you something. That potato salad, when it gets cold and it's in that Tupperware container and it's three in the morning and you're sitting on the kitchen floor and you just finished eating all the broccoli rice cheese casserole and you're opening up that second thing and you're taking a moment to let the rice digest so you can make room for that potato salad. And that's where it's at. That is, that is where I began an unhealthy relationship with food. And it's a little triggery for me making these dishes that I started a, you know, this not okay system that went on to become very damaging. My parents don't know that's what I did. They have no idea that I sat on the floor and I ate in the middle of the night as a little, little kid. Y'all, that's a problem. That's not anyone's fault. That's obviously I had something going on and no one knew because I became really good, really good at hiding. I could maneuver the leftovers that were left in that Tupperware bowl or, you know, whatever rectangle, whatever it was, and shift it around to make it look like no one had touched it. And I made sure to leave a lot, you know, so I would just thin it out so it looked like it was still the same amount. I learned a lot of techniques over the years. Like that's why I sat on the floor with the door open because if someone were to walk in, I could just quickly move my knee and the door would shut and the light was gone and I could go hide in the shadows. That's crazy. When I was in third grade, my parents took me to my very first Weight Watchers meeting. Now imagine that. Imagine the decision as parents that you have a kid that is becoming obviously very overweight. You're very concerned. You don't know how it's happening because you're cooking meals for this kid. The kid is there when you're eating, but you don't know because it's two, three o'clock in the morning that that kid's getting up in the middle of the night, eating and gaining weight like crazy. But you don't know because the kid is hiding and lying and manipulating. And that's what I did. And my poor parents had no clue. So what are they going to do? It's the 80s. What do you do with a chubby, overweight kid, right? Because you don't want this to be a problem. You don't want this kid to get diabetes and turn morbidly obese. So I'm in third grade. And I have no idea where this meeting was. I have no clue in the world. But I'm sure it was at a community center or it was, you know, like, I don't know, a gym. Everything was beige. I remember everything being beige. I remember that there were these horrible, like, plastic chairs that were not comfortable for anybody. You walk in. It's nothing but adults. I was always the only kid, always. And there was this table, this plastic table, and a person on the other side, and these partitions everywhere, right? And when you first come to your first meeting, they give you a booklet. Again, this is Weight Watchers in the 80s. I don't know what year this was. I was born in 77. Someone do the math. I I guess I was eight. And you get a booklet, you put in your name, they weigh you, there's a scale on the ground, and the person on the other side of the table can see the number and they write it down. And then they have like a meeting, right? And they do something about, I don't know, like, oh, Thanksgiving's this week or, 
this is a better alternative to cheese or whatever, right? They had these different presentations and then you had these goals that you were supposed to make and then you come back the next week. I would come back to the next week. I wrote down what I was supposed to write down in my little booklet. I get on the scale. The person on the other side takes my booklet, writes down my weight, records it, and so on and so forth, right? You get the point. And, you know, like AA or like anything else at the time, and I have no idea what they do at Weight Watchers meetings now, because the only thing I know about Weight Watchers now is it's all online and they have an app and all my friends do it that way. I'm sure there's still in-person meetings, but I have no idea what they do or if you still get like chips or rewards, but you would get certain accolades when you hit certain weight points, right? Like weight loss. I remember earning a couple and things like that. At some point, I remember being humiliated about having to get on the scale and another person, an adult who was not my parent, oh, geez, could see it, right? And then I understood like disappointment. I understood judgment. I started to understand a lot of other things. I started to be able to read other people's faces. That was a hard, that was a hard lesson to learn at a really young age, but it was very obvious when I would gain weight and the person on the other side would just look at me with shame, look at me with disgust, look at me, maybe even ask a question. And then I would go sit down and do, you know, the meeting like everybody else. We move right as I was about to turn 10, we moved to Houston, Texas. And my parents didn't continue the Weight Watchers, but I do remember that my mom invented, and God, this is funny because you know what? In the 80s, we had, oh, what is her name? Suzanne Summers. Suzanne Summers, y'all. We had her in the Thigh Master. Anybody remember that? Jeez, do not Google that. And Richard Simmons with those short shorts. I don't know how that was allowed. How was that legal? I love how everybody wore pantyhose with their leotards. I mean, hey, you know, power to them that they can wear a leotard. That is my life goal. To be able to wear a leotard. That's never going to happen. Anyway, so Richard Simmons um, came out with a product called, I think, the Food Mover. Something like that. But what's funny is that years before that, my mother invented it. I'm not kidding. Not that she knew Richard. Not that he stole it from my mother. That's not what I'm saying. But she took a folder that had brads down the middle, right? Like there's three brads, you know, so you could like, you know, so you had like three punch, you know, the whole punched paper. Why am I acting like nobody's seen a folder before? And pockets, right? On either side. And she invented this system where she came up with all this, these colored systems and how many pieces of food I was allowed a day. So like how much water, how many vegetables, how many meats, although I didn't eat meat. So like cheese and dairy, and, um, oh, I guess beans were brown. What else did she do? Fats, I think, were whites. They were all colored, and she did, like, she wrote it on the outs on each color card. She, you know, cut up these pieces of construction paper. So she was like, okay, Liv, so you get, like, three pe- cheeses a day, and you get, like, two butters, and you get, like, four waters. I don't know what it was. And so when I had them, I would just, I would move them to the other side of the folder. And when I was done moving those pieces of colored paper at the end of the day, that was it. That was my food. I was done with food for the day. That would be fantastic, except that my mother didn't know that I was getting up, eating in the middle of the night, whatever I could, 
that was in that refrigerator on the floor in complete humiliation. So it wasn't working. They tried. They did Weight Watchers. My mother invented the system. Richard Simmons took it from my mom and made bajillions of dollars. He did not take it from my mom. <laughs> but it was the exact same system. That's, I think, to this day, amazing. So we moved to Houston, and my parents are desperate. It's junior high, 6th, 7th, 8th grade. I was 10 turning 11, 11 turning 12, 12 turning 13. So, okay, so from like 11 to 13, basically, is when I was in junior high. And I remember the first two years, 6th and 7th grade, is when we did this. My mother would pick me up early from school. Oh my gosh, I don't know, two, three times a week. I might have shared this. And she would take me to Texas Children's where there would be a nutritionist. And I always make the joke that her name was like Heather or Christy, <laughs> like Bridget. I don't know. Some adorable, cute name. And she was always adorable and cute, this nutritionist. And it would change every week because it was always like an intern. Because I'm sure, hey, teaching fat kids how not to eat, I don't know, wasn't that big of a deal. You know, like you didn't need, I'm being ugly because ugh, it brings up a lot for me. Okay, I don't need to be so ugly. I'm sure it was on the bottom of the totem pole of who was going to sit there with me and teach me how big a portion size was, okay? She always had whoever she was because every time it was different, I would get weighed. Oh, God, that was horrible. I hated it. I would get weighed. Ugh. And I had another folder. This one was deep purple. It was a deep, dark purple. And I had to bring it with me all the time, every time I came, which were multiple times a week. And I had all these notes in it. And I had all of their resources and activities that they gave me. But every time was the same. They would have all this plastic food on the table. And we would go over it, over and over it. What was a, what was a, good portion size? What was too big of a portion size? What was too small of a portion size? What was an appropriate size of rice? What was an appropriate piece of bread? What was an appropriate piece of cheese? You know, looking at my hand, here's my palm. I shouldn't have anything bigger than this or more as long as my forefinger, whatever. And I get it. But y'all, my problem wasn't portion control. Nobody knows that, right? I mean, again, this is the 80s. This is late 80s. This is a kid that is gaining weight like crazy. What are you going to do? Maybe she doesn't know how much to eat. Uh, it's so ridiculous how much I lied and hid. I became very good at manipulating the medical community. I knew what they wanted to hear. I knew what they wanted me to write down. I learned how to give the right answers and smile. Here's the thing. One of the best parts about me is my personality. I know that. I'm finally starting to accept it. It's true. I, you know, it is. It has got me through a lot in my life. At this time of my life is where I really started learning those skills of what my personality could do. I have the gift of woo. I can win others over very easily. I'm charming. I'm funny. I'm witty. I'm out of the box. And when I use all those powers for not good, for my own self gain and self, I don't know, I guess with this, I thought I was saving myself. It was like self, I don't know. 
that's a terrible thing to think, but I guess that's what I was doing. In a way, it was self-defense. Sorry, never really thought about that. But here I am, and I'm just trying to make it through another meeting where I have to be center of attention, what I'm doing wrong, and prove that I know how to do it better. Fine. Yeah, I'll tell you that that little circle of rice is the appropriate amount of rice because I know that. Yeah, I'll write down that that's what I ate. I lied so many times. Everything was a fabrication. What I turned into these nutritionists, right? It actually made me want to go and eat more. I think I probably ate my worst on those days. I'm sure to everybody that seems really sick. But I'm just trying to be really honest. It's almost like, have you ever lost weight and that's the night you eat the worst? It, I learned how to self-sabotage at the age of 11. Because even if I did something fantastic in this category, I was like, well, we can't celebrate that. We can't actually be happy about that. You can't actually lose weight and do what you're supposed to do. Let's go eat a sleeve of Oreos. You know what I mean? Oh man, my weakness was premium crackers. Wow. I could eat those like nobody's business with a huge 64 ounce glass of whole milk. Easy. Easy. I rewarded myself if I was happy. I rewarded myself if I was sad. I rewarded myself if I was doing great. I rewarded myself if I was failing. Big old honk of Velveeta cheese. Big piece of white bread. Fold it over. Get a big glass of white milk. and Sit there and eat it. That was the answer to everything I did. These days, the only place I get to connect with people socially is on social media. I would love to make new friends. So if you are enjoying today's podcast, come be my friend online. You can find me on Instagram at Harrison and on Facebook at LiveHarrison. That's live, L-I-V. Here's the thing. It's tough right now, and I love that you're here listening, but I really and truly would love to connect in a more real way. Again, find me on Instagram at Harrison or Facebook at Harrison. I truly look forward to connecting with you and getting to know you better. Where it got really dark and scary was in high school. So my poor mother had been picking me up from school early multiple times a week with my brothers in the car, right? So they're little. She's driving me downtown. I'm sure paying who knows how much money. They were, you know, paying for all these counseling and, and the you know, whatever this was, these, I mean, there weren't lessons, but workshops, all sorts of stuff. And I was just trying to get through it. And finally, they stopped taking me down there. I think after two years, because who could blame them? High school, I get a car at 16. I'm a junior in high school. Most everybody gets a car at 16 as a sophomore, but I am a year younger than everybody in my class. Like I should have been class of 96. I was class of 95. I get a car junior year. And I learn that you can drive that car to fast food establishments and you can buy food at those places. 
here's where it gets really ugly. I would, I had a, oh, geez, does anybody remember Eckerd's? I had an Eckerd's receipt in the glove compartment. Oh, this is, this is dirty. Glove compartment of my car. I would open it up. I would unwrap. I would, you know, like uncrinkle this Eckerd's receipt. And I would pretend to read from it so that the person who was taking my order through the drive-thru, right, at the fast food place, thought that I had a huge order for a lot of people. Because I would say things like, oh, okay, and, you know, I'm crinkling this, this receipt, right? I'm crinkling it, like I'm moving it, making noise with it. Uh, oh, <clears throat> yeah, uh, okay, okay. You know, like doing all this kind of stuff. My mother once uh, oh, <coughs> oh yeah okay my mom want you know like totally making all this up one quarter pound of cheese and my brothers they each want happy meals one wants a cheeseburger happy meal and one wants a plain hamburger happy meal whatever like I just said all sorts of things my dad wants an extra large fry and oh okay so two people want cokes like I would order drinks because I wanted the illusion that this was an order for multiple people so I would, they would say, do you need a drink, Carrie? And I was like, oh yeah, guy, oh, I forgot it last time. And my mom was so mad. Yes, I have. Thank you for asking. I have to have a drink carrier. I figured out where in my car I could hide food. So when I pull up to the next drive-thru, they aren't aware that I already have bags of food in my car. Golly. <sighs> so humiliating. I would, uh, I would go to about like four places Hmm. and I would get all sorts of things. I would go to, um, I would go to KFC. I don't even eat chicken like at all, but I would eat the, um, the batter. God, I would eat the batter. I would eat the the wedge fries. I would eat the biscuits. I would eat the sides. I would go to McDonald's. And even though I don't eat meat, I would eat cheeseburgers because they're very thin. I would get the quarter pounder and I would peel the meat off and throw it in the bag. <laughs> I would, uh, I would go to Wendy's and I would get Frosties and their fries. And I would, uh, I would go to Taco Bell and get all sorts of things. I did eat those tacos, which Nathan says doesn't count as meat. <laughs> I would go to Sonic. I would get, you know, cheese sticks and grilled cheese. I would go to Whataburger. I would find a um, parking lot. I would go to a school or to a church parking lot and I would park my car with all these bags of food, all these multiple drink carriers, milkshakes and blizzards and whatever. And I would sit and I learned to park my car so I could look at the driveway of the parking lot so I could see if anybody was coming. This makes me sick. I can't believe I'm telling you all this. Oh, God. I would put the car in park and I would leave it running. I'd roll down all the windows because I wanted the smell to get out as fast as possible. I would sit there and I would 
gorge myself. Her time. I would cry. I would bawl. Tears would pour from my face. And, uh, I mean, I remember my fries would be wet. Like, I would be bawling and I would just shove the food in my mouth without, without even thinking and I would be crying. And I remember when I first heard the word binge eater, I thought, oh my, oh my God, that's me. That's what I do. I binge eat. I eat a massive amount of food a few times a week like that. The first time I heard of bulimia, oh God, I would pray that I would wake up and be bulimic because I didn't purge. I only, I only ate. I only would binge eat. I never purged the food out. I never threw up. And when I first heard about that, I was like, oh man. That's the ticket. That's fantastic. That, that is gold. But that wasn't my story. I was not bulimic. But God, I remember praying that I would be. Because I just got fatter and fatter. I remember someone saying to me once, you eat because it gives you pleasure. That's why, you, that's why you're so fat. And I remember thinking, if only you knew how much it is not about pleasure for me. There was nothing pleasurable in those moments. It was humiliating. It was full of shame. It was disgusting. I was, I was, I have nothing but hatred for myself in those moments. What's really bad is I would, after I would eat like that, I would get the biggest bag, which normally was the KFC one, and I would crumple all the other bags and um, put them all in that KFC bag and try to smash that down as much as possible. I would drive around with all the windows down in my car for a long time, trying to get the smell out. Y'all, I mean, like, are you listening to this? This is no different than an addict. This is no different than hiding bottles or smoking or whatever, right? And I would pour out the drinks as I was driving. And then I would let go of the cups. And I would find, I think this is one of the most disgusting, disturbing things that I'm about to admit, which I've never, I don't think I've ever talked about publicly. Maybe I have. I don't even know at this point. I would go to a neighborhood I didn't live in and I would take that bag and I would push it out the window, which I'm sure, I think that's terrible. I mean, God, I was literally like, here I am, gluttony, lying, disgust, self-hatred, and littering. Like, holy smokes. And I'm only 16. And I'm in the... 250s. Oh, maybe it was in the 280s already. I was definitely in the in the deep 200s when I graduated high school. I got in the 300s 
college, I'm pretty sure, is when I first hit the 300s. When I got married at 22, I think I got down to the 280s for my wedding. That was a horrible experience getting married. There were two dresses in the entire city of Houston at the time that we could find that would fit me. I had been diagnosed with diabetes the year before. I ended up on an operating table having a massive staph infection being removed from my back in an emergency situation where my mother had to get on a plane to fly to the city that I was in school in so she could be there when I woke up after the surgery was over because she there was no way she could get there in time because that's how fast they had to get the staph infection out of my back. There was this huge staph infection in my back that actually the staph had tunneled and made a second location of staph in my back. I mean, we're talking about in, in moments, if it had hit my bloodstream, I would have been dead. That's how we found out I was diabetic. 21 years old. My A1C, which is, everyone has an A1C. It's your overall blood sugar. It's, a, it's like a snapshot of the last three months of your life of what your blood sugar is. A normal person should be in the range of four to six. My A1C at the time when we discovered I was diabetic was over 14. My sugars were in the 500s, 600s. I was out of control. My weight was in the 300s. I was sick. It was so awful. It was so scary. My parents were terrified. Nathan was terrified. We weren't married at the time. We get it a little under control. I'm on insulin and lost some weight. My mother came into town and reorganized my kitchen and took a set of note cards, put them on a ring, and those were filled with recipes. There were, you know, like all the pink note cards on a ring were breakfast recipes. All the yellow note cards on the ring were lunch recipes. All the green recipe, all the green note cards on the ring were, were dinner recipes. She wrote down recipes. And then I think like orange were snacks. And that's what I was allowed to eat from. As in, you know, to get healthy. Like I can't imagine the agony my parents went through watching me. It's no different than a kid that, you know, like where everybody else was getting into drugs and alcohol and sex, I was getting into food. Like, man, did I miss the boat? <laughs> Here was this good kid that never watched a radar movie till I was 18, didn't have sex until my wedding night, um, didn't drink until I was 21, but man, was I feeding the crap out of myself, right? <laughs> Little did we know that is where I was killing myself, sinning. And losing my soul. Yeah, I didn't do those other things. Oh, what a good kid. Wow, kid lives such a good Catholic. Good Catholic, my ass. I was killing myself. I was screaming. And no one knew because I was lying and I was hiding. And I hated myself and I was ashamed and I was disgusting. And I spent my 20s and 30s not developing normal skills that everybody else developed. Like I do not hell ha like have any self-love. I don't say that lightly. I mean, I swear to goodness, I do not 
have a drop of self-love. And I have no idea how to find it. I'm working on it. I have no self-worth. Because when you treat your body the way that I treated my body starting at the age of seven, how do you have worth? Please, someone explain that to me. When you are so disgusting, there are two dresses in the whole freaking town that you could possibly pick from for your wedding day at 22. That was it. Every other wedding I was in after that, all my brother's weddings, I had to buy two dresses because I got even heavier. There were no dresses. I had to buy two. And I would have to find a seamstress who would cut open one of them and then use the fabric from the other to build a bigger dress for me. I did that for four weddings. I would beg them not to put me in their wedding. I was like, oh my God, please, I will do anything. Please do not put me in your wedding. I don't want to be up there. I don't want people to look at me. I don't want people to see me. Please do not put me up there in a dress. I don't deserve to wear a dress. I'm hideous. I am disgusting. I'm grotesque. Have my hair and makeup done? Okay, what a joke. Let me explain to you my wedding day. My husband, I would not allow him to stand at the end of the aisle and me walk down to him with my dad. That seemed like the biggest lie of all. Like, what a farce. Me, I'm not a girl. I'm not feminine. I'm not attractive. I'm not beautiful. I, do, I can barely be in this one dress. It was a size 28. At the time, I wore a size 26. For all my brother's weddings, I was a 32 or beyond. Well, those aren't even sizes. I found out that old school liturgical stuff in the Catholic church the groom and the bride would both walk down the aisle with their parents. So I, yet again, used this bigger-than-life personality, smiled, made everybody laugh, feel good about themselves, and convinced everyone, this is more Catholic. If Nathan walks down the aisle with his mother and father on either side, and I walk down the aisle right behind him with my mother and father on either side, look at that, everybody. We are so super Catholic. Man, I am so religious. The entire reason I did that was because I could not imagine walking down to a man acting like I was some prize that he's waited his whole life for. Come on. Are you kidding me? Please. Like, what man on the planet would ever want me? Thank God this one did. That's the truth. That is exactly what I was thinking and what ruined the whole thing. What I did not see coming was when they do the whole wedding march or whatever it was that we were playing. I think we did Canon D. The congregation rose when I started down the aisle right behind Nathan with my parents. Because that's what you do when the bride comes down the aisle. You stand for her. To this day, that was probably... The most humiliating moment of my life. The most humiliating moment of my life. <laughs> because 
Why would they stand for me? This ginormous, huge girl. <laughs> There's a picture of me reacting to it. And my reaction was laughter. <laughs> God, my wedding was so hard. Everything was about me and everything was about people looking at me. I wasn't in control. You know why I'm so funny, why I'm so witty? I can control the room. Let me get you away from looking at me. Let me do that as a service to you. I marry this man who happens to turn out to be the most incredible man on the planet. And at 25, I am out of control, 300 pounds, and I end up getting pregnant. So here I am, 25, 300 pounds. I am on 20 shots of insulin in my stomach. That's a good day. Testing my fingers. Nathan said at that time period, he would every day come home from work and just stand before the door before he put in the key of our front door and pray to God that when he opened the door, I wasn't lying dead on the floor. What 25-year-old newlywed <clears throat> prays that his morbidly obese wife is not dead from her disgusting addiction to food? That no one really knows how it's happening, how I'm getting this big. I can't even imagine what Nathan has gone through being married to me. I really can't. By the grace of God, which is a totally different story, we got my son, Zachary, on the planet. This is 2003. It took nine doctors, specialists, 32 sonograms, ultrasounds, whatever the heck that thing is called. 32. Uh, Week-long hospital stay. Um, things you don't want to know about to get that baby on this planet. He turns 18 in January. It was after that where my weight had gotten into three fifties. I think I delivered him. I was like three. Oh, they couldn't weigh me anymore. That's right. I would go to the OB and I no longer could get weighed. So at the end of it, I would have to tell Heather, Brittany, whatever, Rochelle, Whoever she was, uh, hi, I can't get on the scale anymore. I am too heavy. That was awesome. And yeah, so I was 350-something, 360-something at the end of that pregnancy. Ended up with a C-section. I'm sure they just all prayed to Jesus. And I mean that. I mean Jesus, uh, that I wasn't going to die. I know that for a fact. I was told afterwards many times. My mother and Nathan, when Zachary was, I think, 18 months old, literally staged an intervention like what you see in the movies. They sat me down. Uh, somebody took Zach. And my mother and Nathan had notebooks with notes and sat down and said, we are going to send you to a treatment facility. I think it was in Arizona. My mom and Nathan had a plan. They knew how I was going to get there and they knew who was going to take care of Zach, when, what that looked like so Nathan could continue to work. And I looked at them and I put on that fantastic Olivia charm. <clears throat> and I told them, oh, listen, now I can do this. Give me one more chance. 
I mean, you guys, dress like an addict. Because I was. Give me one more chance. Please, I will do anything. Begging, pleading, whatever. And they agreed. That's when I looked into gastric bypass surgery. I think this was 2005. I had had a teacher at my high school. She was 35 years old, 36 years old. Die on the table having gastric bypass surgery. It was devastating. She wasn't the fat, funny girl. She was the fat, sweeter than pie girl. I mean, sweet. I was the fat, funny girl. I was terrified I was going to die on that table. We went to the first meeting, and it was this huge meeting, and I met, and I chose this surgeon because he was known in Houston for having a no one, like a zero mortality rate. Like no one had ever died on his table. It was him and his father. They had a practice together, the Davis Clinic. This was Garth Davis, Dr. Garth Davis. My friends know that he's a huge part of my life now. We're still friends. He's going to be on my podcast in 2021. He's already booked. And um, he's a huge part of a lot of my story, but it started here. And I remember sitting in this room filled with morbidly obese people, which I automatically felt uncomfortable because this was the first time I was ever in a room with people that looked like me the way that I looked. And they gave me a packet, again, a folder filled with all sorts of things. And one was a BMI chart. And the BMI chart, I know a lot of people have controversy with it. That's fine. I'm not here to debate that, but it's a huge part of me and my story. Because on one side, it's your weight. And on one side, it's your height, right? So here I am, 5'4". At the time, I was over 400 pounds, and I was not on the chart. I wasn't even on there. And they have all these categories. They have, you know, normal, overweight, obese, more obese, extra obese, really obese, extremely obese, morbidly dead obese, and then well, I guess you just, I guess you're dead. There was no column for me. I wasn't even on the chart. I passed morbidly obese because I wasn't even on there. The day that I had the surgery, I weighed 458. Now you have to lose weight before you have gastric bypass. I don't know if a lot of people know that. They put you on a very strict all liquid diet. It is death. Oh my gosh, it's Seth. And it took about a year for me to get approved and to go through all the hoops that I had to psychologically and all this kind of stuff. At the end of it, we found out that I couldn't do gastric bypass because I have a Mediterranean blood disorder. I talk about all the time. I have a lot of medical conditions. I have a lot of chronic illness and I do. This is one of them. I have this Mediterranean blood disorder. Only, only Greeks and Italians have it, which doesn't that sound like a bunch of Italians. We're going to have the only, you know, blood disorder. Like that's so Italian. So I have it and it's a, an absorption issue. I have an iron issue. The problem was in America at the time in 2003, there was no one in America who had had gastric bypass with thalassemia minor, which is what I have, this blood disorder or thalassemia beta. So because no one had ever had that before with this surgery, they were like, we can't do it. Insurance wouldn't pay for it. The hospital wouldn't do it. It was a big to do. So Dr. Garth looked at me and said, all right, listen, here's our other option. We could do the lap band surgery. Now, here's what's really fascinating. 
I did not qualify for that. I was too obese for that surgery. No one as obese as me would ever have that surgery. It wouldn't be allowed, but they made a lot of things happen so I could. That surgery definitely saved me in a couple of ways. It got me to my daughter. I lost 100 pounds because of that surgery. We were able to have Kana. Zach and Kana are seven and a half years apart. So I was able to conceive her because everybody signed off, my whole medical team of nine doctors, all of them signed off that I could try once I lost lost 100 pounds, still doing all the insulin and all the things, all the shocks all the time. Um, so I will forever be grateful to Latvian, but it was a horrific, horrific surgery. Like not the surgery. I mean, um, they don't even do Latvian anymore. It is like so awful. I would wake up in the middle of the night choking on black bile. I would wake up in the middle of the night and my pillowcase was covered in black. I would vomit after every single thing I ate for years. I did that. Literally, I would be on a playground with my son at a mommy group. He would be on a slide. I would say to a girlfriend, could you watch him? Like I could barely get it out. I'd be like, could you watch him? And I would run to a bush and toss my cookies in a bush and come back and watch my kid. I learned how to throw up on the side of more streets than anybody. Again, hello, sound like an addict, right? Like I'm like sick all the time, but this is because of the surgery. Oh, it was horrible. He said, Dr. Garth told me they don't allow it. I'm sure there's somebody on the planet that still does it, but they don't allow it anymore. I was so obese for that surgery. He had to take me to um, a special hospital in Houston because you get these fills, like they put basically like a rubber band. This is not at all what it is, but I'm just trying to help. They basically put a rubber band around your tummy. And so it makes, you know, a big part of your tummy and a small part of your tummy. And then there's this like tube that goes to a port that they implant under your skin, where then they take a nine inch needle every few weeks, insert the nine inch needle into the port that's under your skin. So you're supposed to feel, feel for it under the skin. And they shoot a saline solution that goes into the rubber band, which now acts like a balloon that tightens around your stomach. So you eat less. I mean, sure. That sounds like fun and games, but guys, it's horrific. I was so fat. I was so obese for this surgery. He had to put me under this special equipment that this hospital had called a fluoro, a flora something, because he could not ever find the port under my skin to put in the needle. He had to have a special piece of equipment, which was used for something else, to locate the port so he could stick this nine-inch needle in my side every, I don't know, two weeks. And they would, like, get spaced out. When I was pregnant with Zachary in 2003, no one knew. I didn't look pregnant. I was 400 whatever pounds. Oh, okay. I don't know what I was with. 300, sorry. 350 pounds, something around there. I never felt him kick. No one ever got to look at my tummy and see the baby move. I didn't experience any of that. When I was pregnant with Kana, I did. I remember seeing my stomach move. I remember feeling her all the time. I remember at times you could tell I looked pregnant. It was one of the most healing experiences of my life. I'm very grateful I got to experience that. This first surgery got me Kana. When I went back for, I don't know, to see Dr. Garth, he said, live. We can do gastric now. There are people who have thalassemia minor like you 
who are doing great with gastric, let's get that thing out of there and let's do gastric bypass. Now, here's the sad part. Insurance only pays for one gastric surgery. So my parents, who already sacrificed so much for me, who already, I cannot even imagine what I did to their heart. I can't. I cannot imagine what it's like to watch a kid end up here. Be like watching your kid end up on crack or heroin or as a prostitute on the street. Like to end up at 458 pounds, already diabetic. Everyone's afraid she's going to die. High blood pressure, high blood pressure medicine, high cholesterol medicine in her 20s. Like it's a nightmare. I cannot imagine that nightmare. Hey, mom and dad. On top of that, and all the things you used to drive me to and take me to, how about you shell out the money for a second surgery? We are now in 2012, six years later. And they did it. And they've never asked me to pay them back. I got to be honest, to this day, I don't know how much money that cost. But I'm sure they looked at me as their little baby that they brought home from the hospital, that they had such dreams and hopes and plans for. And said, sure, of course, we will do anything to save you, to help you, to get control of this thing that is 100% going to kill you. Because their biggest fear of me becoming diabetic had already come true. God, I can't even imagine. So I had that surgery in 2012. And like any other gastric surgery, it's a dream for a year, 18 months. And they tell you that. And that's the truth. Man, you are, it is awesome. I mean, you just look at food and lose weight. <laughs> uh, but it's going to stop. Right. So from 2013, 2014, we're in 2020 right now. So I would, I will take ownership for the last six years of my life. I have done all the work to do the rest of the work. So from 458, I got to 285 with surgery, with those two surgeries. Okay. The lap band and the gastric that took me from 458, which is the last recorded weight that we had of me. We don't know how high it went, but 458 to 285 was done with surgery. The rest of it, the 285 to today, which is in the 170s, has been on my own. Now, does it help that I have the gastric bypass stomach? Of course it does. It's a tool. That was the whole point. However, you cannot do that tool. You can make your stomach go back to the size that it was. That's the truth. There are many people who have regained the weight, who have gotten bigger than what they were. A lot of people don't have the success that I have, but I have been determined. This is a 15-year journey. So let's talk about what happened after 2012, after that second surgery. It was about five years ago, right? Am, am I doing the math correctly? It doesn't matter at this point. Is anyone sitting down writing down what I'm saying? I hope not. That a friend of mine was doing this thing called intermittent fasting, and he did it very interesting, like where he would take like 24 hours, 48 hours during the week and fast and things like that. I yelled at him. I mean, I went crazy. I was like, oh, you're going to die. I don't know. I said all sorts of things. Lit comes around and I was like, oh, okay, Fridays. We fast for Fridays. And my mom had always told me you could eat bread and water. 
well, that's not really a fast for me. That's called my favorite food group. Okay. Bread. I basically, I tell people all the time, I wasn't a vegetarian my whole life. I was a carbohydrate. I mean, I was every horrible carbohydrate you could imagine. I was Velveeta and seriously, and Pringles and premium crackers and whole milk as a human. And so, I mean, eating bread every Friday literally was Easter for me. (laughs) This is Easter. Okay. So I had, I decided, ah, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do it. I am going to actually fast the whole day. I'll eat a meal at the end of the day. Well, I did that and I had lost three pounds and I was like, well, happy birthday to me. Like, okay. That changed everything. I thought, well, huh, if I do that just on Fridays, what if I do that on like Monday, Wednesday, Friday? I don't eat and then I eat. You know what I mean? Like, and then I started reading my intermittent fasting. I watched a couple of YouTube and I was like, oh my gosh, this is what my friend was doing last year. And I yelled at him and I'm a horrible person. (laughs) Well, this turned into, I would not eat till two o'clock. I would break my fast with a banana and then I would push it and say, I wonder if I could go till four. Then I went to four o'clock. I would fast and I would break it with a banana. That's how I always broke it at the beginning. And then a couple of years into it, I then started doing six o'clock. And it did. It took me, it took me years to get to six. That's the truth. So when I say I fast, I mean, I literally drink water. Sometimes I do hot water with lemon and I don't count the lemon. Maybe I should, but I don't. So hot water with lemon. You want to count it? Go ahead. I drink black coffee or I drink unsweet tea, whether it's hot or cold. So nothing in it. So I drink plain liquids until the time of day. I now wait until 8 p.m. every day. I am now till 8 p.m. I do not recommend this for anyone. (laughs) I say that all the time. People ask me all the time. It has taken me years to build up to it. I also, you know, I've had the gastric, but let's be really honest. It is the best case scenario for me because of my diabetes. All my doctors who are on my team now, I have their approval. They are all aware of what I do and how I do it. Every single one of them. And each one of them has said to me, I would not let any other patient do this, but I, your story is different. And it is like everything else I say, so extra and it's not on purpose, but that is just what it is because I do not eat all day long. And because I have had diabetes for over 20 years, I love this way of life because my sugar does not fluctuate throughout the day. It never is processing food. It's never, my body's never breaking things down. It's not working. It's not having to do all of that. It is the best thing that's ever happened to me. My A1C is 5.8 right now. I love it. I really, honest to goodness, love it. It's almost to the point, though, where I do have to remind myself to eat at the end of the day. Isn't that funny? So fascinating. I always used to say there was nothing different between me as someone with morbid obesity and someone who has anorexia. We have the same problems and issues. They just manifest in a different way. So here I am. I've lost 40 pounds. I was 213 at the beginning of COVID. So March 15th, we went into um, quarantine. And the lowest I've gotten is 172. So 41 pounds that I've lost during this time period. I, for the first time in my life, when I hit 172, got out of 
obesity range on the BMI. I am now in the overweight category. And everybody says, Liv, who cares? The, F- the FBI. <laughs> the BMI. That's hilarious. The BMI is not a thing. It doesn't matter. But you know what? It is a thing. And it does matter to me. It really does. You've never sat in a room with people who are morbidly obese and be the only person not on a BMI chart for fat people. I guarantee I've never found someone else who has lived that experience. And now I'm on the chart and now I'm out of the obesity categories, all 85 of them or however many there were. And I'm just plain overweight. (sighs) I can't imagine one day being normal. I hope to. My big problem now is facing the world and comprehending that I'm not 450 pounds. This is something I talk about, and this is a really big problem because I cannot understand that. (laughs) Like, I do not get it. I do not see what other people see. Sometimes when I put pictures next to them, okay, I can, right? Like I can see that. But the every day, every day of my life, I I think I wake up every single day to Nathan and I say to him, do you really think I'm beautiful? Do you really think I'm attractive? Do you really think I look smaller? Do you really think like, I mean, this poor man has answered the same 12 questions every day. And what's incredible is Nathan from the beginning, since I met him at 16, sorry, dating at 17, we've now been married 20 years. We've been together 25 He has always told me I was beautiful and hot and attractive and wanted to do things to me that boys want to do to girls the whole time at every single weight. And yet I've never believed him. I do not believe when he says it. And I now don't believe it when I hear other men say it. For the first time in my life, other men have told me these things. I've never had to deal with that before. In my 20s and my 30s, I was literally surviving and living as a morbidly obese person. I have no idea what it's like to get hit on. I don't know how a guy picks you up. I don't know when someone's flirting with me. It's almost like I've missed this whole place and I've talked about it because I don't think people understand like, I am serious. When my husband, who is madly in love with me, if anybody has read anything about our story, when he looks at me and I don't have clothes, I can barely say this, and I don't have clothes on, I want to die. I cannot imagine something more grotesque to look at because I am, what, less than 15 pounds away from losing 300 pounds. Do you understand what happens to a human body when it loses that amount of weight? It is not attractive. I've never in my life ever felt physically attractive or beautiful. Because I spent my whole life being morbidly obese and now I spent my entire life with this tremendous skin issue that once again, I am hiding and lying about. I hide and I lie with Spanx and with clothes and with angles and with filters and with makeup and with all sorts of things. I have no idea what it's like to be a normal girl. 
I developed these defense mechanisms, you know, because forever I felt like I should apologize for being on the planet just for existing. Like, what a bother that I am here in your restaurant. What a bother that I'm here in your store. I would have to walk into stores with girlfriends and I would immediately find a salesperson and tell them, hi, I'm here with my friends shopping with her because I can't tell you how many times I would be approached by someone in retail and they would say to me, we don't have anything in your size in this store. There's nothing in here for you. So I can't just come in and look. I can't buy a scarf. I can't be with a girlfriend shopping. So I learned how to tell people, I know I'm fat. I know I'm gross. I know you're having to deal with me being alive. And I'm sorry that I'm here. So yeah, I ended up with severe anxiety, extremely severe anxiety and and severe depression. How could you not? Because every time I'd walk into a restaurant and the girl would look at me and I would have to say, you cannot sit me in a booth. Or I would go somewhere and people would have to get up and and move away from their table or, or move their chair and then sit back in their chair. I would feel like, wow, I can't believe I'm alive. And this person had to stop their meal or stop their day or stop, you know, in the movie theater and get up or, oh God, forget like live theater, you know, and I'm sorry that I'm spilling in over into your chair. Or that you had, oh, at like sporting events. The mere fact that I exist, I promise you, you can't possibly hate it more than I do, is how I spent the vast majority of my life inside my head. So yeah, I do not look at a mirror. I do not think of myself as sexy or attractive or beautiful or would allow anyone to look at myself naked, <laughs> my, including my husband, obviously. <laughs> someone who loves me. For me to allow someone, for me to allow him to look upon me takes a tremendous amount of trust. I have to feel ridiculously safe and loved And all sorts of things for that to happen. And he's been married to me for 20 years. That's got to be exhausting. I've lost followers because I'm losing weight right now. And I want to say to them, look, I get that. That's fine. But this has been a 15-year journey of me losing this weight. You want to know why I'm dancing around in the 70s for as long as I do and as long as I dance around in the 180s for as long as I do and as long as it took me to get under 200 and stay there for as long as I do because I am not rushing it. This is a lifestyle change for me that started a long time ago. And my insides have not caught up to my outsides. And I have been more damaged and traumatized in the last few years of this weight loss story. Since 2017, things started to make a turn for me. The last three years have been tremendously difficult to navigate because I did not develop the correct boundaries, the correct social skills, I had never encountered them before. And when I look at myself, I do not see what the rest of the world sees. 
I have a really good friend who happens to be the producer of this podcast, Taylor Schroll, and is one of the closest men in my life. Ah, geez. I guess it was probably because we haven't known each other that long. It'll be two years this spring. It's probably a year ago, actually. Oh my gosh, it was that Taylor and I were at dinner. And I was sharing with him some stories that were happening to me and had been happening since 2017. And he looked at me and he said, and I tell you what, I, I say this all the time because it was extraordinary. It was the most, one of the most like biggest, I don't even know how to say it. Look, I'm running out of words. I'm, I'm just going to say, I don't know why I'm talking. Why am I caveating this? You could tell I'm nervous. Um, he was a true friend. He looked at me and said, Liv, you enter the room and still think you're in the 450s. There's not one person in this room right now in this restaurant that sees you that way. And he continued and he said, especially men. You're fair game. Anybody from 25 to 45, 55. He was like, listen, all of them. They look at you and they're going to find you attractive. They do not think you're 450 pounds. What you think you look like. And you have a big personality and your face. And like, he was like being very specific. He was like, you have got to cut it out. You do not understand what is happening. You are not dealing with this correctly. And he was watching it. He could see it. He is like so much like a brother. It is unbelievable. And that day, that was the first time. And I needed a man who loves me as a friend and as a person, as a sister, you know, like in Christ to sit down and say, I got to tell you something because you're not getting it. Now I would love to sit here and tell you that I got it, <laughs> but I'll tell you this. I want to, it's not, I'm not trying to be difficult. This is just a very new space for me and it's not something I understand yet. And because of that, I have damaged and hurt myself and my husband and my family and my marriage and my friends. And that's a travesty. And I know I've, you know, I talk about it and I don't. I'm just trying to be honest and real. There's a whole side to getting what you've always worked for. Nobody really talks about it. What's on the other side of when you have sacrificed and worked your entire life for something? Nobody tells you what happens when you actually achieve that success. So my weight loss story is mine. And I know it's extreme. And I know everybody watching on the other side of social media, watching me, quote unquote, you know, I'm in the 14s and the 12s right now. in um size in the 170s for weight size in the overweight part for the BMI size and yet I look in the mirror and I I feel nothing but disgust I believe every man that tells me I'm beautiful I believe every single one of them I believe every man that says I'm attractive I believe every man that wants to buy me a drink or talk to me or, or meet up for coffee, 
I believe every single one of them that they're my friend, that they mean well, that they're being kind. Because how in the world would any man on the planet find me attractive? I am the best. Like, please. I am so desperate to find worth, love, esteem, purpose. And I found it in food. Food would always love me. Food would always give me worth. <laughs> it was always there for me. And I transferred that into people. What they think, how they feel, what they see when they look at me. Because what I see, that's why I apologize so much. I apologize a tremendous amount because I still feel like I should apologize for being here. The fact that you would just sit here and want to be here is unfathomable to me. So it's easy to look at my weight loss and say, wow, lives crushing or doing whatever. All I see is how much I have left to do and a tremendous amount of disgusting skin that is so grotesque you would get physically ill. I hope to have it removed one day. <sighs> That's humiliating. It sounds horrific. It sounds painful. It sounds shameful. It sounds a bunch of things to me. It also sounds impossible. I don't know if I'll ever be able to look at myself in a mirror and see what everybody else sees. I don't know if I'll ever be able to let my husband just gaze upon me and really tell me how he feels and what he sees when he looks at me, what he's always seen when he looks at me. And I don't know if I'll be able to hear a man say things who isn't my husband and, and understand like he's being gross and being a jerk and he's disgusting. And this is what all my girlfriends were talking about when we were in our 20s and I had no schema. I don't know. I'm working on it. I really am. I am trying to get my insides to match the outsides. I want you to hear somebody's story and somebody sit here and be really real and say, this might be what you see, but this is what I'm still fighting. I tell all the time, right? Like my big mantra right now is to let people know that they're extraordinary because I want people to know <laughs> I'm on this big kick right now that I have this theory that the enemy wants us to get comfortable in the ordinary and the normal and the simple. He wants everybody to believe that about themselves. And I believe that's a bunch of crock. How can we say that any of us are normal and ordinary and simple and basic, that big word that goes around, when we were created by the creator of the universe? If we are made in his image and likeness and he is beyond the word extraordinary, then how can we not be extraordinary? Every single one of us is a unique soul on the planet. Not to be repeated, not made by mistake, but made with intention. So I want to start this whole new campaign of letting people know you are extraordinary. I don't believe there's one person on this planet that's basic. I think that's bull. It's impossible. You are from God. He created you. That alone makes you extraordinary. You have an infinite soul, an eternal soul. That makes you extraordinary. 
It's not up for conversation. This isn't a vote. It's not a democracy. It is, that is fact. Whether you believe it or not, the truth is the truth. So today, to end this, instead of me saying, you are extraordinary, which you are, and I am really good at telling people what they should hear, what they need to hear, what they ought to hear, what is true. I'm really good at lying and hiding and manipulating myself. That's, that's who I do those things to now. So for me to sit here and actually say, I am extraordinary. That would be something else. If I could sit here and say it and mean it. But that's how I'm going to end this, this episode. By me saying into this microphone, even though it hurts and even, the do- even though I don't believe it, in my heart, but I know it to be true in my mind. I am extraordinary. I hope you are enjoying this very personal and vulnerable episode of Talk to Me with Liv Harrison. Because I really enjoyed making it. This has been the most wonderful experience. And the way that it can grow and be better is with you. I would love your subscription, but I would really love you to review this podcast on Apple. A five-star review would be fantastic in every comment I read. Also, please share with your friends and family. Well, we are coming to the end of the first season of Talk to Me with Liv Harrison And I cannot believe it, but we have hit over 10,000 downloads. And that's with my 50-day pause. It just goes to show that you can take care of your mental health and start something in a pandemic because I launched June 1st, 2020, and we are coming to a close. There's only two episodes left for this season, for this year. Please come back in 2021. I will be kicking off next season in a way that I think will surprise all of us. So make sure you have subscribed that you won't miss an episode. Listen to the last two and get ready for 2021 because I am. You are extraordinary.